What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today in our podcast, Russia begins military operations in Ukraine. Decorated retired colonel and military analyst Jack Jacobs. Well, it's a war. There's no doubt about it. The question is, how is it going to end? Yes, the world is watching right now. Gauging the implications of the aggression and of the West's response with global hedge fund manager Kyle Bass. The initial sanctions we announced were extremely disappointing. If we're not willing to sanction, call it the big eight banks in Russia, Putin himself, Lavrov uh, and others, that tells me that uh, China has the green light to go take Taiwan. We take you around the world, from reports in Moscow to on the ground in Beijing, where President Xi is striking a careful geopolitical balance. CNBC's Yunus Yoon. China is blaming the U.S. actually for increasing the tensions. And today it rejected the term invasion. And in Washington, D.C., Kayla Tausche. The actions as announced so far are simply not enough to deter Putin. That's one of the reasons why President Zelensky was urging the West to implement the full range of sanctions. Market reactions, political repercussions, it's all here on Squawk Pod today, Thursday, February 24th, 2022. Our podcast begins right now. That's Russian President Vladimir Putin announcing late last night that military operations have begun inside Ukraine. The offensive appears to stretch across the entire country, with explosions and air raid sirens heard in major cities, including the capital of Kiev. Now, Russia says it's only targeting military installations in an effort to demilitarize Ukraine, and that the attacks are in response to previous Ukrainian aggression. But Kyiv has said the attacks so far have killed dozens of soldiers and several civilians. Ukraine's President Zelensky has declared martial law across the country, and the president of the European Commission has said that President Putin is responsible for bringing war back to Europe. Here at home, President Biden has issued a statement calling the war unjustified and unprovoked. He is meeting with the G7 today. The UN Security Council has called on Russia to pull its troops back, and in an exchange at the UN, Ukraine's ambassador challenged his Russian counterpart and urged his other colleagues to take action. Because it's too late, my dear colleagues, to speak about de-escalation. Too late. The Russian president declared the war. It is the responsibility of this body to stop the war. The ideal outcome for Russia, a regime change at least, while still maintaining control of the narrative. According to Russia, this is not a war. NBC correspondent Matt Bradley, who was just this week in Kiev, has moved to Moscow. Right now we're in airstrikes. If they don't achieve their political goals right now, they can ramp it up to more expansive ground operations. 
Putin's appealing to Russian nationalism, but the public may not yet be on board. I was here back in 2014 when they annexed Crimea, and it was kind of astonishing at the time just how legitimately popular that move was, broadly speaking. We're not really seeing too much evidence of that now. In fact, just kind of my very unscientific survey of the situation uh, of my social network and extended social networks and just celebrities, artists, and, and other public figures, this is not a popular action. I think uh, I would describe the main kind of predominant mood, at least here in Moscow, as one of shock. Naturally, the markets around the world have taken a hit. Overnight and into the trading day, markets at home and abroad plunged, sending the Dow into correction territory. The Nasdaq is now having its worst month since October of 2008. Oil prices are surging, defense stocks are on the rise, and there could be deeper moves to come as Putin threatens to shift the power dynamics in both Europe and in the Western Pacific. Becky Quick, Joe Kernan, and Andrew Ross Sorkin dove into all the implications today on Squawk Box. Here's Becky. Joining us right now to discuss this in more detail is Jack Jacobs. He is retired U.S. Army colonel, a Medal of Honor winner, and an NBC News military analyst. And Colonel, this morning, listening to this, the Russians describing this, saying that this is not a war, just an invasion. What does any of this mean? Well, it's a war. There's no doubt about it. The question is, how is it going to end? Uh, we've been speaking a long time about uh, Putin's uh, slow walking this to see what kind of response he's going to get from Ukraine, what kind of response he's going to get from the West. So far, everything that we've done is something that he's planned for and he can, uh, he can undertake. Uh, the, the idea that he'll eventually uh, take over all of Ukraine one way or another is very troubling to our allies, as is any response that we may, uh, we may have, including taking Russia off the SWIFT system. We've already been told by Germany, Italy, and other allies that they don't want to see us do that because it has a deleterious effect on their economies. This is very bad news for us because we don't have a plan B. Uh, we're not going to send troops in there. Uh, we're not going to fight the Russians in Ukraine. We're not going to fight anybody in Ukraine. And our, the only way that we can respond uh, is through economic means. Uh, and uh, Putin's not going to stop until he gets what he wants. Uh, this will also cause, uh, I mean, the irony is we can't affect what's happening in Ukraine. And the only thing we can do is, is dire economic means. Uh, both those and not doing anything uh, troubles our allies. Think about uh, our allies in Northern Europe, uh, in the Baltic states, in Eastern Europe. Uh, if Putin is successful in, in uh, restructuring Ukraine to suit Russia's own needs, the same thing is possible among NATO allies in the worst of all possible worlds, is that if he is able to... Uh, through this kind of coercion to extract concessions from our own allies, Becky. Colonel, if, if that's the case, why are our allies reluctant to remove Russian banks from the SWIFT system? I mean, if, if they are looking at much steeper consequences and a much more bleak outlook for the future, why are they worried about the short-term economic pain in this instance? Because they're only worried about the short-term economic situation. They have constituencies uh, and they're worried about the economic situation, and they figure that the backlash 
from a faltering economy is something that eventually will be able to be redressed without thinking about what the longer term uh, dysfunction is. I mean, all politicians think this way. Some business people think this way. When you plan for tomorrow and you're not planning for the day after tomorrow, the consequences for the day after tomorrow can be can be very bad indeed. I hear your point about what you're saying with um, the idea that they're looking a day ahead, but not the day after tomorrow. Um, that's how they got into the situation where they are so reliant on Russian gas to begin with. But what are the alternatives? If our alternatives are just this, why isn't there a cyber defense? Why isn't there an active cyber situation that we've set up, just like the Russians have done against the Ukrainians? Well, we're very good at offensive cyber. We're terrible at defense, and so are our allies. Uh, we don't have any coordinated way to defend uh, entities outside government, uh, the government, or any uh, cooperation between the government and entities outside government. We have, we're not very good at defense, and neither are our allies, and that's what our allies are concerned about, too. Um, and so are we. Uh, if we use large-scale uh, aggressive cyber means, we're very much concerned that Russia, who's also very, very good at, at cyber attacks, will lower the boom on us too. This is a, a very concerning time. And the, the usual means of protecting ourselves, the usual means of seeking redress for these kinds of things, they don't play anymore. The world is very much different now. And we find ourselves in a situation where we don't have a way to influence others to do what we want them to do, to do the right thing and to back off. And Putin knows what he's doing and knows exactly where he's headed, Becky. Colonel, we, uh, it's a lot of times the other side of the world's inscrutable force, uh, but it, it has been said that Russia is not even an economy. It's a, it's a filling station or a gas station for the world. Can, I'm just trying to get my, my, my head around what it means when a stock market drops 50%. Uh, in a day, if they ha truly had an economy, can you imagine the wealth effect and what we worry about a 10% drop or a 20% drop and what that does to the wealth effect and how that the, the feedback on the underlying economy, that's not a concern for, for Putin. Is there no there is no just democratization of wealth over there so where this would actually uh, make a difference for 30 to 50% drop in, in a stock market uh, would be part of the calculus for, for whether you can pull this off or not? I mean, that's it, it, unbelievable. Yeah, well, we're, we are looking at it through Western eyes, and you're absolutely right. There is no democratization of wealth in, in, in Russia and many other countries that are autocratic. Uh, Putin has two constituencies. One is the people at large. We'll talk about that in a second. The other is cronies, people at the top of the food chain, in the military and the government and oligarchs and so on, and they're protected. A lot of wealth has been, is now stockpiled in Russia, but it's all for a relatively small number of people. For the large majority of people, uh, there is no ki the kind of wealth distribution, the kind of asset distribution that we have in the West. Colonel, what about China and, and what they might be taking away from watching this play out? Yeah, it's a big problem. How we, every, the world is watching, as they said many years ago. Uh, China's keeping an eye on this. It's interesting about China because it's got its own problems. It's starting to turn inward, which is usually in China a sign that they're becoming internally weak and they're trying to shore up their capability to control their own population. 
But unlike previous years, China has the capability not only to control its own population, but now has the capability of projecting its power. Both our allies and our friends and erstwhile enemies like Vietnam has been asking us to demonstrate our resolve in defending the Western Pacific against Chinese expansion and incursion. We have tried to do so, but China's keeping its a very close eye on what's taking place in Eastern Europe. And if we demonstrate, by we I mean not just the United States, but the West writ large, uh, demonstrate that we're incapable of influencing action as close as Western Europe is, as Eastern Europe is to us, uh, they'll be convinced we're not going to be capable of exerting our influence in the Western Pacific either. Yes, the world is watching right now, Becky. Colonel, to the extent that uh, U.S. and its allies do something, what is the potential for retaliation and particularly um, cyber attacks potentially on the United States and what you think that really means, the implications of that? I think we can see cyber attacks in any case, no matter what happens. First, they will be against Western Europe. There have been some already. Um, they've been testing them out, of course, in Ukraine and other places. But we are going to see um, probably widespread attacks, at least at the beginning, to test to see what we're going to do about it and what we can do about it. One of the arguments against yanking Russia off the SWIFT system early on is that we will we have uh, no plan B. And if things like cyber attacks occur, widespread cyber attacks occur, none of us has any experience in the kind of warfare in which it's all cyber or mostly cyber. But if we use the, this is not my argument, but those of our allies who have their own, they have their own axes to grind, but others, particularly those in the Senate, the U.S. Senate, have said if we use, if we take them off the SWIFT system now, we've got nothing else and cyber war is the next thing to happen and we don't have any plan for that. So was Putin correct in his calculations that this is pain, but pain that he can take and that eventually we run out of options and he wins? Yeah, it would appear that he's got, he's, he's got more patience than we do. Colonel Jacobs, thank you. Stock market's plunging on news of Russia's capital I invasion of Ukraine. We called it an invasion uh, at one point yesterday. Um, well, it certainly fits now, Dom Chu, uh, for what's happening over there. And tell us what's moving, individual names. Yeah, so as we take a look at some of the market reverberations, I mean, right now we are starting to just see a little bit more of a pickup in action for some of those single stocks out there. To your point, though, for the S&P futures, we have seen a pretty steady decline throughout the course of the session. The lowest point that we saw just around here was just around 2 a.m. Eastern time for S&P 500 futures. By the way, those S&P futures levels now are at pretty much the lowest levels that we've seen going all the way back to March of last year to give you an idea in context of how we're trading with this deeper pullback in the markets overall. Ice Brent crude world benchmark prices are now above $100 a barrel, $104.61, 8% upside. First time since 2014 we've seen Brent above 100. It's the overall uh, movements that, that we're seeing, Dom, that, that make me wonder whether the knee-jerk reaction to buy dips like this during geopolitical uh, tension, in the past it's always been a pretty good idea to do that. And, and that's some scary moments in the past. You the first Iraq war, uh, Afghanistan, second Iraq war. It, 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 all the way, I remember Bill Clinton, Kosovo, there was a couple of instances and it always made sense to buy it. Does this seem like it could, like it could be 
qualitatively different, the biggest uh, really military action since World War II. I don't know if it's that simple this time. It's, and I don't know what it means for inflation. I don't know what it means for the bond market. Yeah, I don't. Look at inflation on all of these commodities that are there. Inflation is the biggest concern. Pisani was saying yesterday that even the bulls who are still out there at this point are saying maybe the Fed won't raise rates as quick, quick quickly. They're not right. going to be able to do that when you have inflation being added to right. by these See moves the bond that are market. happening right now. Bonds uh, right. reflecting I, I, some. And, and then you start wondering, is there a point where you get an inverted yield curve because of what you're seeing right now, this flight to safety on the, on the long end? I hope it's like the past, Dom, but so, so second, here's, I, here's what I would say. Second biggest country in, in Europe, if he's going full bore, and it's going to become, you know, rebuilding the, the Soviet empire. I don't know whether this is like a, a blip. Well, and it's not just that. I mean, to, to, to you and Becky's point just now, I mean, Ukraine is one of the biggest producers and exporters of corn and wheat in all of Europe. It's also a huge landmass, as you guys have rightfully pointed out. So you all, already, we, we, we show oil prices all the time. Wheat prices up another 5.5% right now. Oat prices up the same amount. Corn prices, even some of the hard commodities like palladium and platinum are, are surging on this. So as we talk about the inflation discussion, one of the key questions a lot of folks are going to have for policymakers, especially at the Fed, if you have these rising prices, you kind of have to do something with rates, maybe, but is now the time to do it? It's not as simple as maybe just buying the dip, Joe. But what we can say is that geopolitical risks over the longer term, right, always kind of smooth themselves out. The issue is what kind of a time frame do folks have? If you kind of need yeah. the money tomorrow, and I'm not sure this yeah. is the time that you want to do I will do say, though, that I've, I've been buying stocks this week, and I will continue today, because if you're worried about inflation, you don't want to keep your money in cash. We're going to have Kyle Bass on a little bit longer if you want to open up a whole new thing to worry about. Uh, that Russia used to have to have a lot of troops on the border with China. Now they're BFFs suddenly, and, and the thing they share in common is to try to, uh, to hurt America's primacy. Uh, so there, and who knows what it, I mean, when would you take Taiwan? If you're going to take Taiwan, I'll tell I you what, Joe, Joe, to your point there, if in a hypothetical scenario, in a hypothetical scenario where this doesn't just go from Russia, Ukraine, but it does in some way change the narrative more hawkishly between China and Taiwan, you could see a much bigger market sell-off there if that were to happen. And it's nothing in relation to the size of Ukraine or troops on the border, but it changes the dynamic in many ways for the yeah. Asian economy and specifically the tech-heavy trade that drives much of the markets overall. So in Asia, this is not in any way, shape, or form to say that Taiwan's in play right now. But yeah. you, you talked to Colonel Jacobs about it just in the last 20 minutes. If there is a changing dynamic in that entire Eastern Hemisphere, with China and Russia becoming closer together and then trying to expand their hegemony, then, then it becomes a much bigger, broader well, market. China discussion. does have a wealth. A wealth. They, I think they'd care if their stock market went down 50% uh, in a week. And they need a global economy. Maybe that, maybe that uh, I don't know, maybe they can put a governor on, on Putin. I don't know. That's sick that we, we, gotta have the, we have to beg the Chinese to help us out now, Dom. Anyway, thanks. Next on Squawk Pod, we're linking politics with portfolios with Kyle Bass, who runs a hedge fund focused on global events. We've really had some huge foreign policy blunders, and I think it's a foregone conclusion that Russia ends up with Ukraine. We're back in a moment. 
The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stand by, Joe. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Orkin. Here's Joe. Breaking news, Russia invading Ukraine after weeks of speculation doesn't just have implications for Europe. Russia and China are much closer. We've grown much closer lately. Remember that just a few weeks ago, Putin attended the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Uh, when Americans had staged a diplomatic boycott. Join us now to talk about what the Ukraine invasion means for the relationship between Russia uh, and China is Kyle Bass, founder and CIO at Heyman Capital. And it, how much has it changed, Kyle? It's been pointed out that some of these, these troops that are massed on the Ukrainian border used to be on the, the border with China, but Putin apparently doesn't feel that he needs to do that anymore. Are they really aligned against us yeah, Joe, I think it's important. Go back and read that February 4th joint press announcement between uh, President Xi and, and President Putin. And uh, in it, they announced a new strategic partnership. And uh, China has tacitly endorsed, it, endorsed uh, uh, Putin's uh, move in the Ukraine. And Putin tacitly uh, endorsed uh, China's one China policy and, and condemned uh, any kind of uh, separatist talking of, about Taiwan. Uh, so I think that... Uh, we're not dealing with a regional crisis anymore, number one, Joe. We're dealing with a global crisis now. Uh, China uh, is going to watch very carefully what the U.S., U.K., and Europe uh, does on the sanctions front. The initial sanctions we announced were, uh, were, were, were extremely disappointing. Uh, if we're not willing to sanction, call it the big eight banks in Russia, Putin himself, Lavrov, uh, and others, and, and pull Russia off of the global SWIFT system, basically uh, eliminating their ability to move dollars around the world, uh, that, then that tells me that uh, China has the green light to go take uh, Taiwan. The Taiwan question, uh, more likely, less likely, the, the, I mean, China needs, China needs a global economy, or can it wait? Can it wait, put off some of its, its, uh, its aspirations in, in yeah. terms of its people? Or, or, they don't want to destabilize things worse than they already are, or are they they're ready to go? They're ready to to do it now since the, the getting is good, maybe, Taiwan? You know, I think it's important to note that I've had a lot of conversations uh, over the last few months with my colleagues in, in, in asset management, and many of the arguments, almost all of the arguments, begin with uh, Putin won't invade Ukraine because it's not, it doesn't make economic sense. Uh, the sanctions will be crippling. 
I think I think what market participants need to uh, basically they need to stop um, disassociate. They need to stop associating their their investment needs with the economic decisions of these of these uh, uh, despotic leaders. These guys are not using economics uh, to make their decisions here. These are these are national security decisions and their decisions uh, where the history books are, are are going to leave them. And I think remember when the wall came down in Russia. That was it wasn't because ideologically the U.S. had a better model and that our model of morality and democracy uh, was something that looked good to Russia. It was because we we and our allies pumped so much crude. We took crude back. We took it down to ten dollars and it broke the Russian economy. That's how the wall fell. Now we have hundred dollar crude. You guys have spent a lot of time this morning talking about the policies of of the past administrations and the current administration. You can't change the, the 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 feedstock for energy in, in, in the flip of a switch. Uh, and, and that's what uh, I think we've been pursuing. And I think that uh, we better start doing something on the hydrocarbon side, putting more money there at the same time, dealing with the climate crisis and maybe bringing small modular nuclear. But back to the Taiwan question, uh, uh, China is going to watch what sanctions we impose on the Russians. And Unlike Russia, China doesn't grow its own food. China doesn't have its own energy. Russia exports 8 million barrels of crude and grows all of its own food. Uh, China would be desperately uh, debilitated if we were to take them off the SWIFT system. So we need to stop thinking uh, in pure economic uh, terms and start thinking about national security. And I hope the people in the administration can do it. So it, it, you made some points there. So drill baby, drill baby, drill ushers in its own bear market, and then and then you stop drilling. So and then and then uh, and, and the opposite is true as well. So you cut off uh, the incentives to drill, prices go up, and then everyone comes flooding back in. To drill. So I can see how it, it's warped the way that it works. It almost reminds me of Schumpeter and capitalism. Capitalism, well, you create a woke working class that doesn't appreciate, or a woke elite class that doesn't even appreciate capital, capitalism anymore. What, how bad is this going to get, uh, Kyle, in your view? And I'm, I'm not asking you to read Putin's mind, but you figure Ukraine is going to be part of, of Russia. Is that, is that the end game here? And that, does it go beyond that? I mean, I think, I think it's a given that, that we've, already, we've already told uh, the world that we will not send uh, NATO or the troops in to defend Ukraine, even though... We were amongst the uh, the leaders getting Ukraine to, to denuclearize after the wall fell. Remember, Ukraine had a third of Russia's nukes, so we got them to denuclearize, and and we, along with the UK, you know, signed an agreement that said we'll protect your territorial uh, integrity from now on if you denuclearize. Well, we blew that in 2014 in Crimea. Uh, we said this won't stand. Well, it's standing. Here's Putin again taking the rest of the Ukraine. So. We've really had some huge foreign policy blunders, and uh, I think I think it's a it's a foregone conclusion that Russia uh, ends up with Ukraine. It's how much do they pay? How how deep do these sanctions go? And and truthfully, Joe, we have an economic nuclear button, and it's to remove people from the global dollar system. We have to be willing to press that. We have to be willing to socialize that concept to our our friends in China. And, and of course, I'm joking when I say friends. Uh, I think that we need to start talking about making non-economic, very positive national security decisions. Well, that, that's, that's going to be painful. And, and we're not going to be, we're going to be doing it alone because we're not going to be able to get, I mean, how much can Europe align with us on this if they're freezing? 
Yeah, I don't know. The, the, the tea leaves are out there. You know, Germany's turning off its nukes, saying they're not green. And now you see all, all of Europe, who has been virtue signaling all along, saying we're going to turn off nuclear power. We are going to, uh, we are going to be green. And now Europe is spooling up coal production and firing up coal-fired power plants. And when, when we were sending uh, lethal aid to the, to the Ukrainians uh, for their defense, Germany wouldn't even open their airspace to the, to, the, to the flyovers. So, you know, we talk about the European Union, but there is no union, right? There is uh, every country looking after itself right now. There's no unified fighting force in Europe. There's a German force, there's an Italian force. We never had a real union in Europe. There's no centralized taxing authority. And now the Europeans are going to act. I think uh, I, I hope they can come together. I, I will, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how cold it gets in Germany before that happens. Kyle, will you weigh in on the debate that we've been having over the last hour? Um, not to play a blame game here, but in terms of whether this is a policy error in terms of where energy sits in terms of uh, the larger national security issue or whether this is a function of the fact, as I was arguing earlier, that, look, at $40 a barrel, a lot of folks didn't want to drill, obviously. And here we are at much higher prices now. And also, by the way, there's been a policy issue beyond even energy about how to deal with Russia on the populist side of, of what might be described as the GOP. You can look at Josh Hawley. You can look at others, even Tucker Carlson, about what to do and how hawkish actually to be. I mean, look, we had Tucker Carlson somehow defending Putin last night. I mean, I, I actually thought I, I couldn't believe I was living in the United States watching this. But uh, look, I, I had the opportunity to meet with one of our ex-presidents shortly after he left the presidency. And, and one thing that I'll never forget that he told me is he said, you know, we're starting to think that Russia's our friend and that Putin's our friend. And he looked me in the eyes and said, Putin is not our friend and he is a stone cold killer. Uh, and so imagine a U.S. president saying that, a former U.S. president saying that. But when we get into energy policy, uh, Andrew, yeah, I, I think it's important to look at the ESG revolution. As you know, I started a new firm that focuses on, on conservation and, and, and um, uh, environmental policy. So I'm very pro uh, environmental policy and, and focused on climate change. However, um, our policies in the markets, the ESG pundits in the markets began to really hammer corporate boards uh, and, and management teams to, to stop investing in hydrocarbons. And public money started coming out of hydrocarbon investment back in 2015. And now you're seeing even private, as, as oil heads up to $80, $90, even private uh, investments from pension funds, endowments, and sovereign wealth funds is actually telling energy private equity they can't invest anymore because of the problems uh, with uh, uh, with the with the call it the the stigma that's been attached to to energy. So Andrew, we have money continuing to come out of ENP because of the uh, desire to flip a switch overnight for ESG investing. So when you think about the structural impediments, we have seven years of massive hundreds of billions of dollars of underinvestment in hydrocarbons because we want so desperately to move to alternative energy. And we're going to realize that the same powers that took oil below zero will take the front end of oil literally wherever it wants to go, because uh, uh, I think we're going to see, uh, it, it, we have inelastic demand for hydrocarbons. So we're going to see prices that I think no one, no one's ever thought we'd see ever again before maybe we invest some more money in, in energy security.
Kyle, I uh, want to thank you. I, I, I agree with uh, many of your points, including uh, including the last one um, in terms of in terms of what's happened. It's, uh, oddly enough, it actually has been a, a free market that's created this this remarkable situation we're in right now. Cheese will be next. Still to come on Squawk Pod, responses to Russian aggression around the world from D.C. to Beijing. CNBC's Yunus Yun on what's at stake for China. China is really tap dancing around the Ukraine issue. On the one hand, um, it does want to be seen by Russia as supportive. On the other hand, the Russian move really breaches what China has said is a key principle of its international relations. Reports from our global bureaus right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod, where we're going around the world, diving into the implications of Russia's military action in Ukraine. We start with Washington, D.C. Here's Becky Quick. Let's go live to Kayla Tausche in Washington for more. Kayla? Becky, good morning. President Biden will address the nation early this afternoon. He spoke with President Zelensky overnight last night, urging his support to the Ukrainian people. G7 leaders are going to be holding an emergency virtual meeting to discuss costs to impose on Russia after the events overnight. NATO allies will convene in short order as well. One European official telling me we need to go all in on sanctions, a U.S. official echoing that, saying full-scale action is needed. Up until this point, senior administration officials have warned limits on Russia's energy exports could worsen inflation and blocks on SWIFT payments could upend too much commerce. But of course, the events of last night have changed all of that. Blasts ringing out across the country as troops move into Ukraine from three sides. Airstrikes killing several dozen Ukrainian soldiers, according to NBC News. And President Zelensky on Twitter urging plainclothes citizens of the country, uh, saying the country will provide weapons and saying, be ready to support Ukraine in the squares of our cities. In the capital of Kyiv, traffic at a standstill as residents are fleeing. One telling me he's stunned the worst case scenario has arrived. And Russia experts, uh, guys, are saying that it is unclear to see what the short term end game is here now that a full scale invasion has been launched. Becky. Kayla, we spoke earlier this morning with uh, Colonel Jacobs, and he was pointing out that a lot of this has to do with the ability to withstand pain in the short term in terms of the United States and its allies. We're talking very short term. If you look at oil prices today, above $100, that, that's going to lead to higher prices at the pump. Obviously, uh, Europe is in a much tougher position because of their reliance on Russian natural gas as well. What, what do you hear just in terms of the resolve, the, the willingness to withstand some of that immediate pain? Well, it does seem that there is quite a bit of willingness to withstand 
uh, that pain. A former Russian official was speaking to NBC News' Keir Simmons a few days ago, saying that the actions as announced so far are simply not enough to deter Putin. That's one of the reasons why President Zelensky over the weekend was urging the West to implement the full range of sanctions now, not to wait for an invasion. But that was not the U.S.'s and the West's strategy all along. They believed that just holding out those sanctions was enough to deter an invasion. They pointed to what happened in 2014, noting that uh, the, the drop in the ruble, the higher borrowing costs, the inflation at that time was enough to keep Putin from uh, taking over Kiev at that time. And so they believed that even more stringent measures uh, would go far enough this time. Of course, we have seen that. That has not been the case, and we'll see what the Western allies announce later today. Yeah, I, I guess the, the pressure points in Russia, maybe they are more willing to go with that. I, I guess the question becomes, will the, will the NATO and its allies remain together? Will they be with, willing to take this shorter-term pain as well? If, if you're Germany, if, if you're the United States, if you are kind of looking at the, the, your population dealing with higher costs, are you willing to deal with those higher costs in the short term in order to stand up and present a united front? Yeah, and so far, Becky, the answer has been no. We heard a senior administration official tell reporters that spillover effects, specifically with regard to cutting Russia off from the SWIFT payment system, uh, was too high a bar to get a lot of those allies to clear. Uh, certainly, we've also heard the White House say that there are 30 NATO allies, so you could see 30 bespoke packages of countries deciding exactly what pain uh, their citizens can withstand. Uh, but it, we will see what they what they end up coming out with and what the fabric of this package ends up looking like overall. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. As world leaders condemn and attempt to de-escalate the situation in Ukraine, Beijing is striking a different tone. Russia has drawn closer to China, with Putin traveling to Beijing to meet with President Xi ahead of the Winter Olympics. The summit ended with a release of a sweeping statement that declared there were no limits on the two countries' relationship and, quote, no forbidden areas of cooperation. Andrew Ross Sorkin spoke with CNBC's Beijing bureau chief Yunus Yun on the ground in China. Yunus, we've been talking about this now for several weeks. I said last week, you know, when the Olympics are over, watch out. And here we are. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, you know, China is blaming the U.S. actually for increasing the tensions. And today it rejected the term invasion. So the foreign ministry said that the Ukraine situation is a result of complex factors. And earlier it said that Washington was immoral for playing up war. So what we're seeing is that China is really tap dancing around the Ukraine issue. On the one hand, um, it does want to be seen by Russia as supportive, since the two have interests that are aligned against Western power. On the other hand, the Russian move really breaches what China has said is a key principle of its international relations, and that is non-interference in the affairs of other sovereign states. So China wants to appear as though it's abiding by those principles. And today, it refused to call the Russian action an invasion. And instead, state media have been describing uh, it as Russia's special military operation. So in doing, though, of course, Beijing is still siding with Moscow. And we saw other signs of support today, uh, more on the economic side. The customs authority said that it's expanding 
its import of Russian wheat. And this is just the latest, um, the latest indication that Beijing really wants to help Russia kind of work its way through these uh, Western sanctions because it comes after what we were talking about before, Andrew, um, President Xi and President Putin meeting and, and really having this um, this kind of love fest um, at the start of the Winter Olympics where the two had announced several gas and, and energy deals. Guys? Eunice, what, what is your sense of how carefully officials in Beijing are watching this situation, the reaction to it insofar as uh, the U.S. and its allies not necessarily being able to take meaningful steps and looking at that as a precursor to the conversation we've been having now for the last year and a half about how you think China may ultimately try to deal with or resolve at least the way they feel uh, about Taiwan? Well, we know that they're watching it very closely, uh, just based on um, the uh, the regular um, announcements that either state media or um, official statements that have come out of the government. In fact, just a, uh, in the past hour, uh, the, the um, state media said that the foreign minister of China had a conversation with the Russian foreign minister, again, reiterating their points, uh, mainly saying that they understand Russia's legitimate concerns. However, in terms of the Taiwan question, I mean, there are... Uh, obvious similarities in that these are um, uh, it's all they're all about sovereignty claims, but there are some differences as well. I mean, Russia, as we know, sees uh, Ukraine as uh, um, very important to its security. Uh, the uh, Chinese see Taiwan as critical to their future. Um, but at the same time, President Xi is not amassing troops. And also one that one very important point is that this is a political year for President Xi. And at the end of the year, there is going to be a leadership reshuffle. And so stability is paramount right now. And that is probably going to play into the whole factor as to whether or not China would even attempt to make a move on Taiwan. Eunice Yun in Beijing. Appreciate it. Thank you. That concludes our podcast for today. Thank you for sticking with us on this eventful news day. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.